Let's begin with a prayer as we open God's Word uh, to hear from Him again today. Father, this morning, we do thank You, for it's because of Your amazing love that we have hope this morning. It's because of this celebration of Your Son, Jesus, coming into the world that we have life. And so, God, today, I pray that You would open us again to Your good news, that You would fill our hearts with good rather than the bad news that so easily finds its way into our hearts. This morning, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. And it's the name of Jesus we pray. And everyone said, amen. Last week, we began a new series entitled Rooted. And if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go to our Faith at Home Center. We passed out some bracelets with some of the symbols that we're going to be walking through in this series. The first of those symbols you see on the screen is a downward arrow. And through this entire series, we're going to be walking through the life of Jesus, the gospel, the good news that we all need to root our lives in. But the first part of that story is the story of the incarnation, the story of Jesus coming to earth, taking on flesh, fully God, fully man. And we're looking at His story over the next several weeks and what it means that He came to earth and the importance of that. But this idea of gospel has gotten co-opted by many people over the years, and it's kind of been watered down, I think, in a sense. And that's why we're returning to this idea of gospel. And gospel simply means good news. It's nothing that tricky or hard to understand. But what is the good news? It's important to know that in the context that the early hearers would have heard this message. And I think if we look around us, we know well enough that good is not the most common adjective used beside news in our culture, is it? I mean, just look, look around and and watch the cable news networks, and it seems like the only appropriate uh, news that we see is bad news, difficult news, hard to hear about news. In fact, we've seen it over our televisions the last few weeks with incidents in San Bernardino in Paris with uh, addresses from the Oval Office and from presidential uh, candidates who continue to give their feedback on what the right decisions are and they aren't. And it doesn't take long to be overtaken with anxiety, with anger and fear about the future if we're not careful about the news we pay attention to. But I believe that there's good news worth paying attention to that might just change that reality if we'd have eyes to see it. You ever thought about the origin of the word news? And that actually is derived back to the 14th century. Uh, It really is just the idea of new or new things in plural form. It's one of the only words in the English language that when you take it from New is an adjective, and you make it plural, it turns into a noun. This is now news. That's what people offer to us uh, all throughout uh, the evening news and other places uh, online. And when news is significant, it changes everything in our lives, doesn't it? Bad news can do that, and good news can do that. But news as I define it in this series is this. News is something that has happened as a result of which the world is a different place. I want you to think back over just this week or maybe think back over your life. What, what are those bits of news, of information you received that changed everything? And I think that's part of the reason that when someone comes to us and they say, I have some news to share with you, it can cause this nauseous feeling in our stomachs, can it? Because we know whatever might be said after that phrase could change things for the worse. Early in our marriage, I would often come to Holly and and, and the way I introed many of our conversations was, hey, I have some news to share with you. And I, I got to tell you, I didn't know what I was doing by starting the information that way. All of a sudden, she would just kind of get nervous about what was being shared and said, don't do that to me. Usually it wasn't anything big. But I learned not to preface 
it that way because we've all had times where people have said, well, I've got some good news and some bad news. Which do you want first? Some of that news that I'm talking about that's good news uh, is, is not what we hear on the news so often. It seems like every time I turn on the news, there's this sense of something that's changing the world from bad news from that perspective. Some of you have received that call at 1 a.m., haven't you? When that phone rings at 1 o'clock, you know there's nothing good that can probably come on the other end of that line. And even though CNN and Fox News might cause us to believe that all news is bad news, I want to convince you this morning and remind you again that there is good news in our world, and it has to do with the entrance of Jesus into this world. And there is good news that we hear in our own lives, phrases like, it's benign. Isn't that good news that shifts our lives in a whole direction? Or... uh, would you mar- uh, will you marry me? Another bit of news that maybe some of you have heard or given that news before. We want to offer you the position. Again, a life-changing message that can change everything. But maybe we should focus most of all on the image that I've heard three times in my life. We're pregnant. Because that changes everything. I've heard that phrase, it's a boy once. I've heard that phrase, it's a girl twice. And, and the amount of preparation that went from that bit of information, that news shifted our world tremendously. And many of you have experienced that, not just news about children, but other things that change everything in your lives. But that's good news, isn't it? And as we enter the Christmas season, we are celebrating news about a baby that has altered the future forever, alters the the life we live in in the present, but even the days to come. Now, long before Jesus was born, God began to send pieces of good news through messengers, the prophets, that they would give to Israel while they were in exile. This morning, if you have your Bible, I want to point to a couple of those passages that point forward to the good news about Jesus who enters the world. The first of those I want to go to is in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. And I want to begin reading in verse 6. And I want you to imagine hearing these words from Isaiah, you're a refugee in exile, and you hear these words as words of good news and hope about the future. This is what Isaiah says, Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now imagine being the first hearers of this message. This would have been wonderful news, wouldn't it have? To imagine there's going to be a child born that's going to change everything. He's going to be the prince of peace. He's going to be the mighty God, everlasting counsel. These are words of good News, But I wonder out of that passage what the best news would have been for the people of Israel. And I'm just beginning to wonder, and knowing the world we live in, if that word of peace might have been the greatest news they could have received. Because these are people who've been pulled away from their homes. These are people who had seen their relatives and friends killed in the midst of this exile and all that was going on. So I want you to hear these words again as words of good news to these people. Again, the end of verse 6 and verse 7. Let's read this again. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. This church is good news. It had to have given them hope. But then the question is, okay, that's great. There's a child that's going to be born. He's going to bring peace into the world. But how is peace achieved? How how is this peace going to come? 
And if you pay attention to Isaiah 9, 6 and other passages, you begin to get a picture, don't you, of who this Messiah might be. Uh, And Isaiah 9 has some hints. He's going to be the Prince of Peace, but how is he going to be the Prince of Peace? How is this going to be achieved? And he says, he's a mighty God. And I have to imagine that they're hoping for a Messiah who's going to show these people who brought them into exile who God really is. That he would come with power, that he would come with might, that he would overthrow those who had taken them over and provide back their rightful land. And if I had to guess, I would assume they were looking for a Messiah who would come with military victory. He would come and again establish them back in the land they know. This is what the kings had done for Israel before. This is what the promised land and that story had done. So of course their imagination is pointed this way. And isn't that our assumption as well in our world? That when things go wrong, when difficulty comes, when discord or violence or evil enters into our world, isn't our first response to kind of strengthen up, to make sure they know that we've got more than you've got, to make sure that no, no, you don't do that and mess with us because you're going to get something in response. And if you begin to look at Scripture in some of these passages, you can see where that hope for the Messiah would have looked something like that. Another passage I want to turn forward to is the, in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, these words are words of, of Daniel, who is an exile as well. This is Daniel 7, beginning in verse 13. This is the vision, the dream that God gives to him that is a vision of good news. Daniel 7, verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Again, the images are vivid, aren't they? One like the Son of Man coming down. His dominion will see no end. All nations will come together in this King and worship Him. And if I'm an exile that's looking to the future, or if I'm a Jewish person living in the first century, the time of Jesus under Roman rule. I'm putting two and two together. As a child is a prince of peace. He's a mighty God. He's going to bring dominion. This must be a powerful guy that's coming. So you're looking for a Messiah who can finally take down the Romans. And during that time, if you look at the history books, you begin to realize that the Jewish people had Messiahs that looked like that. People who claimed to be the Messiah, they were false messiahs, but they came in trying to stir up these people to revolution, trying to take over Rome, and time and time again, these false messiahs would come and would be put down by the sword of Rome. And this was the way that they had imagination about the future, and how could you see any other way? Because Rome during that time had something that Caesar Augustus called the Pax Romana during that time, the Peace of Rome. And he declared the peace of Rome in 27 B.C. And you know how he did that? He went to the Roman temple for the god of war, and he shut down that temple as a symbol to say, we don't need the god of war anymore because war is done away with. I'm announcing the peace of Rome. And actually, it seemed like a miracle at the time because for a 200-year stretch beginning in 27 B.C., it was a time of peace in the Roman Empire. It was a time where there weren't wars. Their land wasn't being taken. It seemed like a good thing from the outside in some ways. But how did Caesar establish this Pax Romana? Well, he established it through the threat of the sword. He established it through his dominion and through his power and through threats. And, and, And so it was a way of kind of having power over to say, yeah, we have peace. Try to mess with that peace and see what happens. 
And so he would go from city to city and he would send his soldiers out throughout the empire into lands they hoped to gain beyond that. And the question was, will you give your allegiance to Caesar? Will you say that Caesar is Lord? And some cities would give their allegiance to Caesar and they'd pay taxes for protection. And they'd use that money to go and develop further cities and go on with the project. But there were some cities that said, no, we won't pledge our allegiance. And quickly it was clear that you weren't going to last if you didn't pledge your allegiance to Caesar. And so during this time, the Romans develop and perfect the crucifixion, for instance, and other methods of trying to maintain this peace that was to be achieved at all costs. But let me ask you, that Pax Romana worked in a sense, didn't it? But is that really the peace that we're all looking for? A, A peace through dominance, a peace through threat? And I would say no. I would suggest that if someone's yelling, we're going to have world peace, even if I have to kill every last one of you, that's not the peace that God promises to bring into the world. That strategy is as crazy as a father who's upset with his kids, and he yells and screams at them over and over again with threat after threat. Yes, they may remain silent after a time of that kind of abuse, but you can be sure for decades they're going to be working out those issues as they try to find peace that their father never could provide in the home. Peace is more than just the absence of conflict. And sometimes it's, it's hard to imagine a way out of this cycle, isn't it? Because this is how it works, right? I mean, there's this cycle of evil. There's this cycle of violence that just grows and grows on itself. Because it's so natural to assume that the only route to peace is through power and through more power and so forth. And I understand why the Jews would have anticipated it. Because how do you have any other vision when Rome is as powerful as uh, Rome is but If you combine the prophecies in Isaiah and Daniel, if you combine this hope, and it seems like the only possible way that God could bring His peace into the world. And this is the surprising good news about the good news of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus isn't born in the way you'd expect a warrior king to come into the world. He was born the son of peasants. He was born in a stinky manger in the middle of a genocide. Not exactly the entrance of a king you might expect to be written. But Jesus enters in in this humble state. Jesus enters in, and yes, he has a price on his head that Herod's willing to pay, but as refugees, his parents go to Egypt and are finally freed until finally Herod is done away with, and they're able to come back. And So this is the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that Jesus knows quite well, but Jesus offers a different kind of peace. It's a peace I'll call the Pax Christi, the peace of Christ. And it is a very different picture, because the, the, the Pax Romana, again, was peace through victory, through violence, through war, through fear. It's the same cycle we see promoted in our world. So what's the Pax Christi? Well, Jesus remembers something that we often forget, that violence never really can truly bring an end to violence, can it? The revenge never gets its thirst quenched. The Pax Romana didn't last forever, remember? History tells the story of Rome's demise. And the truth of the matter is this, the only way to end the cycle of violence and evil is not to gain more arms and more power. The only way to end that kind of violence is for someone willing to step in and absorb the pain and suffering in the world and to call attention to what it truly is. And that's the good news of Jesus Christ. See, many people had been looking for a Messiah through the lens of Daniel chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 9 and other passages. They were looking for a a king that Rome could no longer defeat. But Jesus was the first Messiah to combine the message of Daniel 7 that's there with another passage that some of you probably know quite well. It's in the book of Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 53. This is the Messiah 
that's told of that looks very different than their expectation, but it's exactly what Isaiah had proclaimed years before. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. Amen? We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of this generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. You see, Jesus comes to earth and he absorbs the sin and the violence and the evil of this world, and he took our place in payment for our sins. And this principle is true. Peace cannot come through this cycle that our world goes to so often. Peace can only come when one is willing to absorb the violence and the evil that goes on in the world. And you all know this because you've been to summer camp before, right? You ever been to summer summer camp? The cabin wars that go on? Greg, you've been there before a few times, right? At summer camp, there's always these cabin wars wherever I would go to camp where one cabin has plans for what they're going to do to the other cabin, right? And and, and they have a great idea, I'm sure great in their own minds, and then they do it to the other cabin. What happens? That cabin just takes it and goes on. No, that's not what happens at summer camp. Because you've got to do one better than the other one, right? So the other cabin goes back and takes it out on the other cabin, and back and forth it goes. This cycle continues, right? Until somebody steps in or someone's willing to absorb it. This is true in our relationships as well. Some of you got into relationships that you're a part of that you never signed up for the pain you've had to endure in that relationship. You you signed up hoping the best for how your marriage would go or for how that relationship with a friend would go. And at some point in that relationship, you took on some kind of suffering, you took on some kind of abuse, you took on some kind of difficulty. And the way relationships work is it's easy for that cycle of retribution and revenge and difficulty to go back and forth, isn't it? You do this to me, you deserve this in response. I'll keep that record of wrongs, even though Paul tells us differently in 1 Corinthians about what love is. But this is the natural cycle of how we work. But the only way broken relationships are able to be restored is not for us to continue this cycle that happens so easily in our relationships. The only way that can happen is for one person to have the humility to have the maturity, but this isn't just natural. This has to be the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to somehow absorb the pain that if passed on would only be transmitted that much worse. And I'll tell you, it's easy to talk about that. It is so hard to practice that. Some of you have experienced some deeply hurtful things in your relationships. And for you to walk into a situation like that and just act like it's okay to absorb it. And I want to be clear, if there's a situation of abuse in your life, I'm not suggesting you just keep bearing up under that abuse. There are relationships to put an end to. 
But if you want to make your marriage better, if you want to make your relationship with that person better, we can't run from those things. We can't retaliate and keep a record of wrongs. It's going to take at some point in our lives where we're going to be able to get to that point where somehow through the miracle of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, we're able to bear up under that suffering and to absorb that sin and decide this isn't going to get away in the future of this relationship. It's the hardest decision you'll make. And it doesn't make any sense. It's not a natural way to go. But it's the hope your relationship has for the future. The other day, I was talking to a guy in this church family who's serving as a chaplain at one of our children's hospitals. Once you imagine walking into the hospital every day, waiting for the conversations, the difficulty, the evil, the sin, the abuse that's going to walk in the doors. You know what he said to me as he defined a chaplain? He'd been given this definition from someone else, but it became useful for him. He says a chaplain's job is to be there for people on the worst days of their life. I mean, just imagine that. You, you are preparing yourself every single day to walk in knowing the worst day possible is what's bringing these people in. And somehow the only way you can bring salve to that situation, the only way you can bring mending and healing, the first steps of what will continue in grief for years and years, the first step is just to be able to st- sit there and take it and be a representative of God and be able to absorb this pain in some way that this family is dealing with for the first time. That's the calling of us as the people of God, isn't it? To somehow be so in touch with the Spirit of God that we don't walk into these situations with our own junk getting played out in those relationships, but somehow we become prepared to somehow be these sponges for the difficulty and the sin. This is what Jesus did. So what does this have to do with the incarnation? It has everything to do with the incarnation, doesn't it? Because when God sends Jesus into the world, it's not just a salvation mission. It's also a way of showing us this is the way you're to live. This is the best way humans can possibly get along together. Because Jesus came as good news, and the good news wasn't just hope of eternity. The good news was hope for reconciliation and peace to happen today. Jesus entered into a world full of bad news, and I can assure you the world's still full of bad news. Amen? But he comes in as good news to somehow offer an alternative to the ways the world works. So often we think the only route to peace in our lives is to one-up someone else. But it always leads to more chaos, doesn't it? When Jesus entered the world, he enters with good news. There's so much to unpack about this good news. We have weeks to discover that together. But he knew that the cycle of violence and evil would not end if Jesus just stepped into it as a Messiah, only like Daniel Uh, chapter 7. He knew that Isaiah 53 was something that had to be uh, brought together. So what is peacemaking? Here's how I'd image that for you. Peacemaking is is putting a stick into the wheels of the cycle of violence that just continue and continue. And that's what we do as humans. When we're Christians and we're living out our calling, there's this cycle that goes on in our world and any way we can get a chance to get inside the spokes and take that pain and suffering in order to stop this cycle of violence, that's the call of the gospel in our lives. The question is, is this actually work at all? Because isn't, this isn't the way we hear you ought to deal with this kind of stuff in the world. And I want to submit to you, I think it does work. How many of you have heard the story of St. Telemachus before? Not a story I've heard all that often, but I look back at it this week and I was amazed by what I saw. Telemachus was a, a monk in a monastery in the 5th century, after, 5th, 5th century A.D. after Jesus. The, the church is finally kind of gaining prominence and 
allowed to kind of do what it needs to do in culture. It's a legal religion. But he's in the east, and he receives this call from God to move from the east uh, to Rome. He feels like God's called him to Rome. And so he moves to Rome, and as he moves into the city, he gets caught up in the hustle and bustle of a crowd that's on its way somewhere. And so he follows it in, assuming God's calling him up to this task. And he finds himself in the frenzy of it in the midst of the Colosseum. He's in the stands of what's about to be a gladiator fight. Now, Telemachus had heard stories about this going on in Rome, but he never seen it. He didn't know if it was an actual reality, but as he began to saw what happened, there had just been a defeat of people far off that Caesar had brought back, and these criminals, these, well, no, they're not criminals, these refugees were brought into the center of that circle to fight the gladiators in the midst of all this. And Telemachus is sitting in the crowd, and in the midst of this, he knows, I've got to speak up. This is what God has called me for in the midst of this time. So this is 402 A.D., and he felt this specific call not just to Rome, but to step in to the center of the gladiator circle. Some of you have been to the Roman Colosseum. You've seen, you know, you can even picture this scene. And one historian tells the story, and he says, in the midst of this fight that was about to ensue, Telemachus screamed at the top of his lungs, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I serve, stop it. Stop it. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom I serve, stop this violence. And the gladiator stopped only to turn on Telemachus and kill him in the ring that day. In the silence of that moment, Telemachus had called attention to what the powers do. People began to kind of get up one by one and leave the stadium in silence. And the last day of the gladiator fights in history in Rome was January 1st, 402 A.D., the day of Telemachus' death. That's what it means to be a peacemaker. And it's not always easy, and it often involves all kinds of pain and difficulty along the way, but we're called to put ourselves in the midst of the violence, the cycle, the evil, and not one-up it, but to step into the midst of it and call it for what it is. It's crazy. It doesn't bring what it promises. That the way of Jesus in Isaiah 53 is our way of life as well. So I guess I'm wondering this morning, I know I'm speaking into some delicate situations in your life, but I'm wondering what kind of suffering in your life right now is God calling you to put a stop to? What kind of suffering do you see in the lives of others around you that you need to somehow speak up and bear up in that suffering? You're called to be a sponge to absorb that evil and that difficulty. I'm wondering what it is in your relationships. Maybe it's your marriage that this is the hard conversation. that You're not going to continue this cycle that's so easy to keep going. But one of you is going to stand up and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to say, I'm done with this. I'm owning what I need to own, but we're not going down this route anymore because love does not keep a record of wrongs. And I'm tired of keeping up count. This is a hard word, church. But it is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the alternative way that Jesus calls us to live. It is the picture of Daniel 7 and Isaiah 53. It's the picture of Jesus. Amen. Let's close with a time of prayer this morning. God, I pray that you would imprint on our lives this narrative. Not the narrative of one-upsmanship. Not the narrative of more power and more violence and more evil to try to somehow overcome. That doesn't work. We've seen it not work. We want to trust in the way of Jesus. We want to trust that somehow through the power of your Spirit, you allow us superhuman ability to absorb pain and suffering that we don't know how we possibly can. So God, we we repent of the times that we've heaped on more trouble, for the times we've kept the wheel spinning, for the ways that we only put more gasoline on the fire. 
And today we want to be willing to bear up in that suffering. So God, point it out to us. Give us opportunities this week to, 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 to put sticks in the spokes of this cycle that so easily happens in our world. And may this be good news for those who see it, that the glory may be yours and yours alone. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.